Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Father, we ask that you would help us to have the spirit of forgiveness that our Lord Jesus teaches us to have here. Light up your word to us now through the power of your spirit. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The original plan for preaching this passage was that Pastor Dan was going to preach this sermon. But this week, Dan has been very busy with obligations related to Ben and Abby's wedding. And so Pastor Mark graciously agreed to do it in his place. But even Pastor Mark sometimes finds himself overwhelmed by responsibilities. And at the wedding last night, I confided to Dan that I still wasn't finished with my sermon. And Dan, to comfort me, said, well, you know, that passage will basically preach itself. And I said, it might have to. (laughs) But honestly, Dan was right. This does preach itself. What Jesus says here comes through loud and clear. He makes a really strong point about forgiveness. He illustrates it with a memorable story. And then at the end, he gives us a kind of zinger to apply the story to us. This is a sermon in and of itself where Jesus teaches two interconnected lessons about forgiveness. First, Right at the beginning, introducing the parable, Jesus shows us that forgiveness must be overwhelming and unstending. If people sin against us and repent, then we ought to forgive without limits, to forgive without setting limits. 
on our forgiveness. That's the first lesson. The second, at the end, is related to it. God's forgiveness is the basis for our forgiveness. If we have received mercy, then we must show mercy. That's the essence of what Jesus is saying to us. In introducing the parable, Peter asks a question of Jesus, and he proposes what must have seemed to him like a generous cap on forgiveness. The rabbis would have said, three times is the number. You must forgive your repentant brother three times. After that, clearly he's got a problem. You have to wonder if this repentance is real. But three times you owe him. And so Peter, proposing this idea to Jesus, doesn't say, hey, are the rabbis right? Three times? He goes up. He goes to seven. Seven, the number of completion or fullness. Right. So Peter has an idea that he should be generous. It makes sense because of what Jesus has already told us about how much he values forgiveness. So Peter knows the rabbis are wrong. It's got to be more than three can't possibly be more than seven, though. So seven is the number he lands on, and Jesus says, actually, no, it's going to be a little bit more than that. In fact, a lot more, 77 times, a fullness beyond measure. These sevens are, are heavy with symbolism in Scripture. So 77 is like saying, take the fullness of generosity that you imagine and multiply it by an incomprehensible Degree. There should be no limit, no cap on the spirit of forgiveness. Jesus here is teaching us as his people that we ought to have a fundamental orientation toward forgiveness. Our way of thinking about forgiveness shouldn't be that, that it's, it's in limited supply and that forgiveness is one of those things that's easy to abuse and we want to be careful when we dole it out, just the opposite. Jesus models for us and encourages us and commands us to what you might think of as like an over-generous interpretation of forgiveness. The repentant sinner will never run out of mercy. But this is by means of introduction, right? Here, Matthew gives us the parable of the unforgiving servant. And in that parable, Jesus really gives us a side-by-side case study, two examples that we compare, uh, the merciful king on the one hand and then the unmerciful servant on the other. He talks about the merciful king who he makes clear is a symbol of his heavenly father. So the story of the king, the king in the story represents God himself. And that king calls for a settling of accounts. In other words, a kind of judgment, justice is going to be done. Part of doing justice is paying what you owe. That's what's going to happen here. But when the servant can't pay, when he cannot possibly meet the impossible debt that he has accrued, uh, 10,000 talents is an impossible number. It's, It's a huge number. It's larger than the whole tax revenue of Judea that this servant offers. It would be like saying in, in modern terms, this guy owes billions of dollars and he can't repay. It's important to understand the scale of his debt because when he says, give me time and I'll repay everything, that's an impossible statement. There's no way he could ever repay the amount that he owes. But when he faces the penalty of that debt, when he and his family and all that he has are going to be sold, he pleads for mercy and the king 
hears him. The king shows mercy. More mercy than he asked for. The king doesn't suspend the judgment and say, I'll give you more time to pay. That would be crazy. The king forgives the debt. Right? He hears the plea. He forgives the debt. Jesus says he does it out of pity for him. He has compassion on this man who cannot pay his debt, and the king forgives it. That's a picture for us of gospel forgiveness. Right? We owe a debt that we cannot pay, and there will be a reckoning. One day we will stand before the king, but the one who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The one who throws himself on the mercy of the Lord will have his debt canceled by the merciful king. But by contrast, Jesus goes on to show us this picture of an unmerciful servant. The very same man who receives mercy doesn't show it, right? Despite the fact that the king has shown mercy on him, he goes out, he finds a guy who owes him. It's a considerable amount, but it's not nearly what he himself owed. He doesn't just confront them, he chokes him. He grabs him by the throat and he says, pay what you owe. And when the man pleads for mercy in words that are almost the same as what this man had just pleaded, he doesn't listen to him. Instead, he has the sentence carried out. He does justice to that man. He does not give him mercy. And all the other servants, seeing the hypocrisy of it, report it back to the king. And the king is horrified by this. I showed you mercy. Shouldn't you have shown mercy? Okay, if you don't want mercy, I'll give you justice instead. So the sentence that was suspended is then carried out. And Jesus says, the same thing will happen to you if you do not show mercy. That's the point. When you've been forgiven so much by God, you can't think of setting limits on the mercy that you will show to others. And those who refuse to show mercy will receive justice instead. That's the sermon. There's just a few things I want us to think about that flow from Jesus' sermon. A few ideas to unpack that are here for us to reflect on. Uh, Three ideas. First, debt. Second, karma. And third, love. Debt, karma, and love. We'll start with debt, because debt and forgiveness are interconnected. The question here is, who will pay? Because somebody has to pay, right? Debts don't disappear. Debts have to be paid. That's the reason why there's this debate about, uh, you've heard it, student loan forgiveness. The reason it's controversial, if you have a lot of student loans, maybe it's not controversial to you. If you don't, you pay taxes, maybe it is controversial to you. But the reason it's controversial is that nobody can wave a wand and make debts go away. That for debts to be forgiven, they have to be paid by somebody. There's always a cost. And it's no accident that Jesus, when he wants to talk about forgiveness, tells us a story about debt. Because debt and forgiveness go hand in hand. If there wasn't a debt, there would be nothing to forgive. Debt, when you think about it, is an obligation that is created by our actions. Right? You borrow money, you create an obligation, an obligation to repay it. You commit a sin, you create an obligation. Something has to be done 
because of that transgression. Now, throughout Matthew 18, we keep returning to this idea of sin. Jesus keeps bringing us back to the problem that sin represents. And here, we have to confront an aspect of sin that is often forgotten. And forgetting this makes it impossible to think biblically about sin in the first place. That idea is debt. That sin creates a debt to justice. That sin creates a debt to holiness. And debts have to be paid. The king in the parable, when he cancels the debt, when he forgives the debt, he doesn't make those 10,000 talents just disappear. In order to forgive the debt, the king has to be willing to take the loss. He has to be willing to take the loss that canceling that repayment will create. To forgive the debt, the king himself must fulfill the obligation. He has to take the loss on behalf of the one who he is determined to forgive. The king, in other words, pays. That question, who will pay, is an important question. Anywhere you go, in any context. If you travel to southern Italy uh, and you go to a coffee shop there, you might have the opportunity to experience a cafe sospresso. Uh, last night, to my horror, I discovered we'd run out of coffee beans and there was no coffee for the morning. So you might think I just have coffee on the brain, but cafe sospresso is not a coffee delicacy. It's not a drink that you can purchase. You buy your coffee, and then you pay for another one, and that's the Cafe Suspresso. That is the suspended coffee. It's held in trust until someone comes along who cannot afford to pay, and then the coffee shop gives that person coffee too. It's a beautiful tradition that arose in a very poor part of Italy, Often, that's the way it goes, where people are impoverished and poor. They become conscious of their own need and conscious of the needs of others so that when they have something, they're aware of those who don't, and they go out of their way to provide for those needs. They develop the habit of taking the loss on behalf of those who can't. In the Old Testament, in Israel, God himself built into the culture that he was creating in the promised land similar kinds of habits, which we could summarize under the heading of Jubilee. Leviticus 25 spells out all the details. Every seventh year in the promised land, the the land itself would be given a rest. It would take a Sabbath and rest from its ordinary use. And after seven of these sevens, after seven sabbatical years, so 49 years later, on the Day of Atonement, the trumpet would sound, and on that day, debts would be forgiven. Land would be restored to its original owners or compensation paid, and bondservants would be freed from their bondage on the Day of Jubilee. But that wasn't simple generosity. God built that pattern, that habit, into the culture of the promised land to embody principles, to teach lessons. 
to demonstrate, for one thing, that the children of Israel cannot be dispossessed, that there is no way to take from them the inheritance that God has given to them. But it did something else as well. If you were one of the people who was giving out the loans, purchasing the land, then you had built into your life the expectation that from time to time, you would be called upon by God to take the loss on behalf of others. That you would be called upon to forgive. In the promised land, God himself was discipling his people to be forgivers. One of the ways that they would follow him was in developing the habit of taking the loss and forgiving the debt. And to refuse the call to forgiveness would be to repudiate the gift that God had given to his people. To forget that in the promised land, there is no mine, there's only his. And that everything we have is given to us so that we might use it to serve one another. In these examples, you see a pattern for this church, spiritually, a model for us to follow. The forgiveness that we receive from Christ should shape us into forgivers, people who are willing to take the loss, who expect sometimes to take the loss on behalf of others so that they can be restored, to forgive those who sin against us. When a brother or sister sins against you, they owe you a debt. Our scarcity mindset leads us to fear that we might be over-forgiving, that we might forgive too much that is coming to us. There has to be a limit. But the king here demonstrates his power by forgiving an impossible debt. The king shows how great he is by walking away from a sum of money in order to show mercy to a man who cannot pay. A ruinous loss that he takes on behalf of that man. That is strength. That is divine strength, the power to forgive in that way. The King, our Heavenly Father, sets no limits on the forgiveness that He shows to us. And to follow Him, we must strive to set no limits on forgiveness. That's debt. But it does raise a question about karma. Karma and forgiveness. Who should do the paying? Somebody's got to pay, but who should pay? It makes sense, I suppose, that if Christians have been forgiven, that they ought to be forgiving people. But, but all sorts of people who aren't Christian are forgiving. There are other rationales, other logics to forgiveness and why you might want to forgive. I heard it explained this way by one person. I thought this was a good way of encouraging anyone of, of any creed to be forgiving. She said, whatever you put out into the world, that's what comes back to you. So put out the good forgiving energy and that's what returns to you. Basically forgive so that you will be forgiven. Be a forgiving person and the universe will manifest forgiveness to you. And you say to yourself, well, that sounds like some kind of new age mumbo jumbo. So let me rephrase it for you this way. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And then maybe it sounds a little more familiar. 
but it's the same idea, more or less, and that captures an aspect of wisdom in some sense, right? It makes sense, sure. It's true, but only partly true. Only partly true. And and what karma leaves out of the equation is actually important. It's actually something to think about, because that's really what we're talking about, karma, right? If I'm a forgiving person, then I will be forgiven. If I show mercy, then I will receive mercy. What goes around comes around. That's karma. And that makes sense as a rationale for forgiveness. It works really well, especially when it comes to forgiving people who offend by doing the sorts of things that you yourself might just as easily have done. When you have to forgive someone who makes the kind of mistake that you just as easily could have done, maybe you have done it in other circumstances, it's easy to forgive. Because you've done it. You can sympathize. And when you did it, you wanted forgiveness. And so you give to people in that situation what you wanted when you were there. You can sympathize with them. What strains us, though, what makes forgiveness difficult is when that bond of sympathy is not there. Forgiveness is hard when you're called upon to forgive people that you cannot relate to. When you're called upon to forgive people who do things that you would not have done, that you would have found impossible to do. In those kinds of circumstances, forgiveness suddenly is a struggle. Things become unforgivable to the extent that we can't empathize with the offender. That's one problem with using karma as a rationale for forgiveness, but there's another one as well. It has uh, an effect of changing the way that we see people who offend against us. If it's true that people receive what they put out, then maybe some people don't deserve your forgiveness. Maybe they've earned the punishment that they're receiving. In fact, I would argue that that is the corrosive problem with justifying forgiveness on the basis of karma at all, because it encourages a blindness to certain kinds of offenses, certain kinds of offenders, the ones that we personally don't identify with. You can comfort yourself that whatever you've received is a result of what you've put out there. If people have been forgiving to you, well, yeah, because you've been a forgiving person. But with other people, you can say, you know what? They put bad energy out there. They put that that sinful stuff out there, and now it's coming home to roost, and good for them. They deserve it. So that we can actually rationalize our own hardness of heart and place the burden on them. We're both just reaping what we've sown. I sowed forgiveness. You sowed sin. This is just the way it goes. There's a song, actually, that embodies that principle really well. Uh, Those of you who remember when I sang the Spider-Man song, don't worry, I'm not about to sing this song. It's not very musical, actually, but it does have the advantage of being, I think, the oldest lyric on record. One commentator calls this song the sole literary relic of the antediluvian race. I am, of course, talking about Genesis 4's song, 
of Lamech. The song of Lamech, the very first lyric recorded in all of Scripture, is a hymn to human strength, where this guy Lamech boasts about his own strength. He sings this song to his wives so they will know how great, how powerful a man he really is. Uh, the most famous line is this boast. This is from Genesis 4.24. He says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Can you hear an echo there of what we just heard in the exchange between Peter and Jesus? There's something there, a connection there. Now, Cain's revenge that he refers to is sevenfold. What he's talking about there is actually a promise, a protection that God places over Cain, uh, the mark of Cain, which prevents anyone from taking Cain's life. Even though he committed murder, God gives a promise that protects him And that promise involves a sevenfold recompense for any injury done to Cain. So if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, he's referring to that providential divine promise that protects Cain. If that's good, I'm better. I'm better. My vengeance is 77-fold. So Lamech is boasting about his own strength in comparison to the strength of God. He says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Somebody wounded me, I killed him. Like, he offended me, I crushed him, I destroyed him. That's the song that he's singing about his own power, about his own greatness. Ever since those days, ever since that song, the human conception of what strength is has been wrapped up in that ability to return evil for evil to crush those who come against us, to do it with overwhelming force. That's strength. That's power. That's how kings are meant to operate. And when we have power all too often, that's how we do it. And there is a kind of justice in this, right? Someone wounds him and he kills that man. Well, that man's just getting what's coming to him. Like he put it out there. He dealt the play. Lamech just brought it home. He executed the judgment. You see the connection. It's another way of seeing karma. It's not just a justification for forgiveness. It's a justification for retribution as well. You get what you deserve. Sow the wind, reap the whirlwind. But Jesus calls us to a different conception of strength. His overwhelming response to our sin is not retributive, but restorative. 77 times worth of forgiveness, not vengeance. That's what Jesus gives. That's what Jesus calls us to do. It's interesting, when Peter asks the question at the beginning, the way he poses it really situates the one who's forgiving as having a kind of power over the one who was offended. They ask him, like, how many times do I have to forgive him? I'm the one that has the power to forgive. How often should I use it? Jesus reframes it where the obligation really is not on you as the forgiver, but you as the forgiven. Right? Once you start asking the question of how often should I forgive, Jesus says, well, I don't know. How much have you been forgiven? Maybe that's your answer. 
Right? Don't be proud and think that forgiveness is a favor that you grant to the undeserving because you yourself are undeserving. The forgiveness that you show is an expression of humble gratitude to the one who forgave you, right? Which brings us lastly to love, because love and forgiveness are wrapped up too. You see that when you ask yourself the question, why did Jesus pay? Why did Jesus pay the debt? You think about it, a lot of the rationales that we might use for forgiveness really don't apply in Jesus' case. Jesus never needed to be forgiven. But when Jesus teaches us about forgiveness, we have to start thinking about his own act of forgiveness, like what that forgiveness was and what drove him to do it. And what drove him to do it is not what drives us. For him, there was no what we call a human basis for empathy. Jesus doesn't look at us and say, look, you've sinned, but hey, there but for the grace of God go I. I just as easily could have done what you did. If, if I were in your situation, I would want someone to be forgiving of me, so, so I forgive you. That logic may work with us, but of course, it doesn't apply to Jesus. It's quite the opposite. Jesus has every reason to be offended and appalled by the offenses that we commit. If deeds become unforgivable once we cannot see ourselves doing them, then by that standard, in Jesus' eyes, we must all be unforgivable. That's actually a realization a lot of people struggle with. Once they come to see the reality of their own sin, it seems obvious to them that they must be unforgivable, that based on what they've actually done, seeing it in its true light, there's no way that Jesus could forgive them. There's a logic to that, but it's the logic of fallen human beings because we forgive out of that sense that that we could just as easily have done the same thing. But Jesus' forgiveness, because it is real, must have some other basis. It must come from some other source, because even though there isn't that sense of, of, I guess, fellowship in sin to bind us to him, nevertheless, he sacrifices himself on our behalf. He forgives. The author of Hebrews describes Jesus, depicts him, not only as a priest, but also a priest who sacrifices himself for his people and who does this, the author of Hebrews says, out of sympathy. He does it out of feeling for them, out of the kind of pity that drives the king in the parable. He can sympathize with them, not because he could easily imagine himself sinning in the same way, but a sympathy based on something else some other connection, some other bond. His sympathy for us is not based on the relatability of our faults, but on a deeper identification that began before that, that has roots underneath and before our faults, on that love that he set upon us before the foundation of the world. Jesus didn't need to put forgiveness out there so that he could be forgiven. He did not need to be forgiven at all. So that rationale won't work. And yet, out of pure love, he forgave. Out of love, he forgives. Out of love, 
he will forgive. It's love that drives his forgiveness, and that helps explain why it is so limitless, why there is no cap that you can put on it. Another implication of the way Jesus talks about forgiveness here is that the forgiveness that should drive us is a forgiveness that is already accomplished. It's a fact. It's not contingent. Jesus is not telling a story where a man must forgive in order to be forgiven. That's the story of karma, but that's not the story that Jesus tells. In the story that Jesus tells, a person must show mercy because that person has already received it. The forgiveness that we have from him is already complete. Last night at Ben and Abby's wedding, Pastor Wayne quoted a line which I appreciated for two reasons. One, because it fit really well in his sermon. Secondly, because it fits really well in mine. It's 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, where John says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Very succinctly, there it is. The atonement, the sacrifice, the forgiveness that Jesus gives comes out of love. And because of that love, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We ought to show the same mercy and the same forgiveness. First, as you think about the forgiveness that Jesus gives us, it's important to just marvel at it. To marvel at how limitless it is and how without any sort of of complicated human rationale it is. Out of love, he gives himself fully. He doesn't need to earn forgiveness by forgiving. He doesn't forgive out of a consciousness of his own faults the way we would. We forgive out of a sense of our own weakness, but he forgives to show his strength. And the only rationale for that kind of giving is his love. And having seen that love and having felt it, then what we must do is follow him, to follow him in that love. If we're going to follow him, if we're going to forgive as we've been forgiven, then we have to do it out of a similar kind of love. If we struggle with forgiveness, if we worry that there's going to be too much forgiveness, if we're concerned about forgiving the wrong people or the wrong sins, going too far, The solution to those concerns is going to be love. To love Christ more. To love one another more. And the more we love, the smaller those problems will become. I'm not saying that if we just love one another, then forgiving one another will be easy. I'm not sure forgiveness is ever easy, even when it should be. But I am saying that it will be right And that one of the disciplines that we're called to as a church is this kind of loving forgiveness. Knowing that we will be sinned against. That there will be a cost to that sin. And that in order to forgive, sometimes we will have to pay the cost. We will have to take the loss. We will have to forgive and forget. And recognizing that as we do that, we draw closer to Christ in love. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship 
by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.